Hello and welcome to the I Was Gonna podcast. Episode 13. This week we had the great pleasure to catch up with executive media and presentation coach, TV and radio presenter, Paul Coya. We chatted with Paul about the effect COVID has had on his career and the media industry in general. So Paul, all of us have found this a really, really unusual time and we've all experienced it in our own personal ways. There's been very specific things that have happened to to each of us that have have touched us in different ways. You noticed that you'd lost a a dear friend and and mentor to, to COVID during this time. How have you been coping generally with the whole crisis um, and how have you been coping from, from, from not just the, the mental side of things but from the work side of things how has it affected you from the work side of things everything bar my bbc radio show has gone completely disappeared right into next year i had various conferences i was hosting including a a summit with world leaders in Davos, where I was hosting a panel discussion on the environment and sustainability, gone. Uh, Coaching of uh, British Telecom and the directors there for a conference, gone. An oil conference, gone. You name it, it's disappeared. Um, So my sanity, my kind of keeping busy has come from doing my radio show and also from well, two other things, actually. Every morning, because I've, I've got time, I narrate talking newspapers for a blind charity and then upload those files and that's it done. It doesn't take too long. And also, for the first two months of lockdown, I was narrating an audiobook for a German publisher, which was 420, 430 pages long. So that took a long, long time. Trying to do it from home, send it to the engineer to tidy up, get rid of any fluffs and mistakes, lays with Germany. It took about two months. So work-wise, it's gone. But in terms of keeping sensibly engaged and feeling that I'm mentally involved in things, it's been fine. Also, I managed to get... Well, my oldest daughter, who was on a trip, I managed to get her home. That was troublesome. We got her home from New Zealand, and we'd really been worried about that, but we got her home just in time. And so as long as you get your family around you, I guess that's the most important thing. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, you do a lot of business training as well. Have you found that there's a lot of people who are maybe not as, as comfortable being on, on webcam and getting used to the whole Zoom culture <laughs> as possible. And, and, it, and it's, you know, I don't know how many times uh, we've had the, no, I, can't, I can see you, but I can't hear you, etc., etc., and and various versions of that. Has that taken up any of your time in terms of training for that sort of thing? So have, have you kind of moved into that area at all? Well, it's weird because um, one of my clients, uh, in fact, they're the world's largest chocolate company, so right up my street is a, a chocolate. <laughs> I usually um, coach them for the half-year results and the full, full-year results. So I get a copy of those ahead of time, and we work out what questions journalists might ask or analysts might ask, and I coach the CEO and the chief financial officer, etc. And that carried on. We did the half-year results back in March. Normally, I don't get involved in the third 
quarter results, but we're going to be doing that because it is different. They are using the Zoom technology to talk to the analysts and haven't done that before. Normally, they just do it face-to-face in a room. So I am getting involved in that. But then again, you can only go so far coaching. Yeah, you can coach people how to sit still in a chair, look in the camera and talk to people. I get all that. Um, You can't teach them how to be engaging, how to make eye contact in terms of spotting if the other people are really engaged or not. You can't really tell them how to uh, picks and troughs, make it interesting here, maybe take their mind off the ball there. So if you can then engage them with this, that's more problematic. And last week, uh, I won't mention the name, but it's a household company, a bank, who look after some of my investments. And they said, oh, we need to have uh, a Zoom uh, session and all our analysts will be there and they're going to talk to you. Oh, great, lovely. I went on it. And it was, you know, after two minutes, I wanted to take all my investments out. (laughs) These people shouldn't be trusted to give pocket money to their kids, never mind look after investments. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are basics, but... you know, funny enough, a pal of mine, Ross King in LA, he phoned me last week and he said, you know, we should do this. We should coach people on Zoom for how to mm-hmm. do Zoom sessions. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. But as long as you know, you can only go so far. And I, I think Zoom is really important just now. It undoubtedly is. But it's not the answer to the future. The answer in the future is getting back face to face. Yeah, and I think, uh, as you say, it's, it can't be the complete solution because you can't suddenly make people interesting. Because no. if they're not, they're not. <laughs> it's very true. But what, one of the things I always say right at the start when I'm coaching people, and I coach, but I coach CEOs, I coach boards of directors, but I also coach sales forces, just regular guys like us. And I always say to them, whether they're the chairman, the CEO, or whether they're the newbie who's joined the sales force, I always say to them, look, we can either have fun with this or we can be pole-faced. And if we're going to have fun, be prepared. I'll slag you off. But it's not intended to be offensive. It's mm-hmm. just intended to break the ice. But we'll all come out stronger from it. And also, I'll say, I can either, once you've done something, be really nice and say, mm, I see what you're doing there. Maybe we should try it another way. I said, that takes too long. Why don't I just say that's SH1T mm-hmm. and then we can work out why? And they're always, 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 whoever it is, always, yeah, let's go for the quick route. You know, let's not beat about the bush. Mm-hmm. So people are willing to learn. And while you can't make them interesting if they're boring people, you can give them some pointers as to how to pull out personal stories. I call them war stories because if they're a sales force, they're out there trying to make commission. So tell stories of people you've met, how they like the product, what they've said, how great it is to work with your workforce, who inspires you within the company, that kind of thing. You can teach them that. And that, when you see the difference it makes, it's hugely, hugely satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, that, that's the thing, is engaging with them on that human level and trying to strip away the artifice of of being, you know, them you know, maybe th- their position as opposed to themselves um, and just getting them to be more human. As you say, tell stories. I mean, that's, that's how we all connect. Stuart, want to jump in here? I was just going to say, Paul, we, we, a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed uh, the chairman of Hamilton Football Club oh. and uh, he had literally just come in the door and his dog wanted his un- 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 attention. 
And all we could see in the background was him throwing a ball and the dog running backwards and forwards. And in the background, if you listen to that podcast, all we can hear is the dog scurrying about. He was an absolute pro. And I mean the dog. Natural. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But again, that, that, that's human, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, been yeah, yeah. it's not putting on the presenter's suit of armour becoming robo-presenter. It's just being yourself. And that's Absolutely. the one thing that nobody can copy. It's the one thing that nobody else has is your personality, your experiences, your anecdotes, your interactions with other people. So why would you want to smother them and cover them and hide them away? by, you know, trying to be robo-presenter. I just don't, I just don't get it. Well, I think in my case in particular, Paul, I, my default setting is borderline offensive, so I've kind of got to pull it back a bit, you know, right. so um, I'm, I'm on my best behaviour. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, Callum, you were going to say something? I, Paul, I think what's been interesting for me about video chat is People have developed this new wave when you finish a meeting. That was something that we never done before. Um, the other thing that I've found is that actually I think business is a wee bit quicker when you're on Zoom, especially yes. if you a big meeting of people. Um, but, I, but I like yourself, I'm very much a people person and I'm missing that human interaction and the facial expressions and so on, which are often very hard when there's a, a delay or whatever. But I, I like a wee bit of sarcasm as well. And again, it's hard yeah. to sometimes get that over people, you know. So there is, there's a place for it, I think, beyond this. It's moved us on maybe you know, five, ten years as a, as a global society in terms of our understanding of video conference. And I think more people will use it. But like you, I want to get back to the old scene the light of their eyes. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to that. It's interesting what you say, Callum uh, and Greg, about the sarcasm thing, because we all come from Scotland. And the sense of humour in Scotland is based on I slag you off, you slag me back bigger, and we all laugh about it, right? And that's why I got on so much with my wife's relatives, because the Liverpool sense of humour is exactly the same. But I'm coaching people on an international stage. Sarcasm doesn't play in Japan, it doesn't play in China. really doesn't play in America, especially yeah. at the moment. Um, <laughs> no. So you have to temper that. And if people have got that kind of default, and I do it myself, I have to bite my tongue because I find, it, oh, here's a great line I'm going to say, mm. and it's going to squelch it, but then they'll come back bigger and we'll all laugh. You go, oh, God, no, this can't work. It's a different culture. So you have to be very careful about that. So moving on a, a little bit past where we're at just now um, on the whole Zoom culture, how do you see the media industry changing after after COVID? Um, do you reckon there's going to be more of? I mean, we've we've seen an awful lot of this, you know, on on TV programs where we're interviewing somebody in their home and on all that sort of things. Do you think that's actually going to become part of the sort of formula for more of the live TV set of things, or um, or yeah. yeah, yeah, because now now it's been proved to work. And now that people are used to watching it, and now that the broadcasters have worked out actually, it's not just cheap, it's free, then why on earth would you not embrace that as part of the media going forward? It won't be yeah. the be all and end all the days now, but it will undoubtedly be part of it. And I think technology's got better. I think that the old fuzzy buffering nonsense has gone now. So it, it, it's really good. I saw a camera piece, a piece of camera that Chris Mason of the BBC political commentator did yesterday walking down the street. And it was done on a camera the size, in fact, about half a Mars bar, the size of it, almost like a GoPro. And the sound was great. 
So why would you, when I started in telly, if I went out to do a piece in the street talking about, oh, I don't know, the high street opening up and talking to shoppers, there would be a cameraman. Uh, he might do his own lights, but there might be a guy doing lights as well. There'd be a sound man. There'd be a production assistant taking notes. There'd be me. Um, well, there's five. Well, now it's just the presenter. And he might, might actually give that GoPro to a member of the public to hold. Or maybe you'll have a producer or somebody with him who will use. So, yeah, it saves money. But going forward, I've already noticed the difference. When I go to the BBC now to do my radio show, my radio show used to be on a Sunday morning from 6 till 9, the breakfast show. Well, it's now 6 till 10. And the guy who follows me uh, has expanded his show to four hours from three hours. If things can expand so that for health reasons you have fewer people coming through the doors, fewer presenters, that makes sense. Now, if that works, why would you go back to employing more people? Mm. Now that the econo economics and the safety of that style of broadcasting has been proved, I think that we won't get back to the full employment that we had before. Undoubtedly, a lot of the people who are furloughed just now in the commercial sector will find something else to do. A lot of people will not have work to come back to. So going back the way, Paul, um, you started your career in hospital radio. Mm. Um, what was your inspiration for that in the first place? Well, I when I was at um, when I was at university, I um, I didn't have any money, obviously, as students don't. So my dad said, "Well, go and get yourself a weekend job." So I started working at the local hotel as a waiter, and every Sunday night there was a mobile disco came in, as we called them then, and it was modest queues around the block to get into this thing. And eventually I started working behind the bar at it to earn more money on a Sunday night. Got to know the guy who was the DJ. And he said, I've got this gig uh, in the Ingram Hotel in Glasgow every Thursday night. Do you want to go and do it? I said, I've never done it before. He said, well, go and try it. I did. I loved it. I thought, this is what I want to do for the future. So I started doing um, events with him. And one of them was uh, an event organized by a record company, Phonogram Records, for, oh God, it was to celebrate the release of a brand new Sydney Divine LP. Nice. <laughs> Guys, nobody would have done that then, would they? Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I, I did a bit of um, playing with the records at that. And this guy came over to me and he said, um, I work for Radio Clyde. I like what you're doing. Would you send us a demo tape? So I said, oh, right, okay. So I sent them a demo tape and I was still at uni. So I didn't have any of the gear, but I borrowed the mobile and set it up in my mum's front room and did a bit of that over a couple of days. And within two weeks, I got a letter from Andy Park, the program controller at Radio Clyde saying, thank you for your demo. Would you come and see me? phone um, my secretary so I did and I was so so excited and I told everybody I'm going up to Radio Clyde I've got an interview great so I go on the appointed day and I go in there's a cup of tea waiting for me and I sit down with Andy Park and after the pleasantries he says I've had you in here he said because I just wanted to remind myself of the face that goes with the voice he said 
uh, and also to say to you that I have never, ever in my whole career, and I thought, here we go, here we go, heard such an appalling demo tape in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't employ you even if you lost your voice. It was so bad. And I thought, dear oh, God. God. <laughs> but he was, he was lovely, and he said, you haven't got it. You're presenting as if you're in a club. You're not presenting as if you're on the radio. It's much smaller than that. It's much more personal. Why don't you try and join Hospital Radio and learn how to do radio? Mm -hmm. So I applied to Hospital Radio, and there's a lovely guy in Glasgow who started Hospital Broadcasting Service, HBS, uh, Eric Simpson, sadly passed away now. He passed away a couple of years ago. And Eric said to me, yeah, I'll teach you, okay. So I joined there. And the big number one hospital broadcasting presenter who I met on the day I was first there, who was leaving to go and work for the BBC at that time, I think he sold paint or something, but he had just got a job at the BBC. It was a guy called Ken Bruce. Yeah. So he's you know, quite well known. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's done all right. <laughs> you know, Twenty-seven years he's been, or something, thirty no. years, one hundred and seventy-five years he's been doing radio. Yeah. Um. And the guy who showed me how to work the desk, <clears throat> excuse me, was a guy called Charles Nove. And Charles now presents The Breakfast Show on Scala Radio. And uh, I met a guy who's still my pal today, even though we live half a world apart, uh, Ross King, because he more or less started at the same time he came down there and learned how to do it. So it was tremendous, phenomenal um, teaching and learning what to do and what not to do and why why you're doing it. And at the end of the day, the reason you're doing it is because of the audience, it's not for yourself. If you want to start shouting over records and you know just saying, look at me, I'm a big guy, go and do it in your front room because nobody else is entertained by that. You've got to have some sort of communication. And that's what they taught me there. I was so grateful. So obviously communication is the you know, your your industry uh, we, we touched on it earlier on talking about the business presentation training and public speaking coaching how did that come about in the uh, in the first place well years ago i through doing telly i worked on a show called the holiday show and i presented various from around the world various reports from lovely sunny places uh, it was one of the best jobs. Actually, the best job ever was working on a show called Pebble Mill at One because I had three years of that. <laughs> and I was single, and they used to fly me around the world doing reports from Singapore, the Seychelles, New York, wherever. And in the Seychelles one day, I remember I was sitting, we got the afternoon off, and I was sitting on the edge of the pool, dangling my feet in the water with the cameraman and the sound guy. And I said, Guys, life doesn't get better than this. We're getting paid to sit in the Seychelles in the sunshine doing nothing. How can we improve on this? And right on cue, Miss Scotland, Miss England, and Miss Wales dived into the pool and swam over to us and said hello. They had won that as their prize. And I thought, oh, you know, this isn't there. I'm in heaven. And they became good friends. It was great. Um, so I was doing these holiday things, uh, reports, and my agent got a call from Thomas Cook. And it was a guy saying, could you come to Athens and host a conference for us? And I said, and the agent said, do you want to do it? Well, I've never done a conference, probably not. And she said, well, actually, they're paying you blah, and they're going to give you a holiday on the Nile. I went, I'm there, I'm there. <laughs> so I went over not knowing what a blinking conference was, and I just had a ball. I had such a lovely time. And funnily enough, um, I'd forgotten this, but 
Uh, they'd also booked one of the presenters of Matt's Life to who played the piano. And they booked him at the end of the day, after we'd done all the interviews on stage, he would make up funny ditties and he'd sit and play them on the piano uh, as a kind of wind down for the evening dinner. And he now follows me on a Sunday at BBC Barcher. He does the radio show after me, so we've met up all these years later. Which wow. Is yeah. uh, really nice guy. Sorry. Sorry. So he, um, so I did that and I came back and I said to my agent, get me some more conferences, this is great. So I started doing these and got more proficient at it. And then one day I was asked to do a conference for a company, I won't mention who they are, household name company. And they just got a new CEO. And the audience were really, really worried because I spoke to them beforehand as they were coming in because they thought, is this guy going to, cause redundancies, is he going to restructure, what's he going to do? So when I met the new CEO backstage, he said, when we go on, he said, do me a favor, before we get into all the spiel, just say to me, how are you finding the first few days? I said, yeah, okay. I said, what are you going to say? He said, well, I'm going to say there's good news and bad news. The uh, bad news is there are going to be redundancies. The good news is I'm not one of them. And I said, you can't say that. And I said, oh, it'll be funny. They'll laugh. I said, no, you can't say that. They're really worried. No, 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 no. And uh, we really had almost like fisticuffs backstage. So we go on stage, all smiles. And here's your new CEO, Joe Bloggs. And uh, he waits for me to ask the question. And I, I don't do it. I just plunge on and I'll do anything other than ask the question he wants me to do. And every time he tries to bring it around, but there's good, and I'm no, I am know what he's going to say, but it's good news. So I head it off. And we come off stage and he said to me, he swore at me and he said, you're not getting paid. I said, why? He said, because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And I'm the client. I'm signing off your invoice and I'm not going to do it. So we had another fight, and then the head of communications came over to see what was happening. And when she found out what, was, what had happened, she pulled him away, and she came over and she apologized to me later. She said, thank you, you've saved us, and you've saved him. And uh, I thought, suddenly a light went on my head, there's too many people who don't know how this works. Yeah. They think that they do, but they don't. Because they only do it once a year. If Maybe not even that, maybe once every five years. I'm doing it every week. Why don't I pass on some shortcuts? Do this, but don't do that. Here's why you do it, etc. And that's what started me wanting to, to actually coach people. And it's that practicing empathy for the audience, knowing, knowing the room, judging the room, um, mm. and thinking of it from their perspective rather than, oh, I think this is going to be really, really funny. No, 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 it's not about yeah. you. It's about them. Um, and it's just making that, that shift. Um, yeah. I, I love doing the um, techie companies because what I do is a warm-up with the audience to try and get them to realize it's not pole face, don't worry about it, is I'll say to them, right, we're going to divide the audience into two halves. You over here, your information technology. What are you? Information technology. Whoa, great. And over here, you're the software guys, the hardware guys. Why are you software and hardware? Yeah, so I get them all channel. Who's the loudest? Great. And then I say, of course, we don't call it information technology. We call it IT, don't we? Yeah, what are you? IT, IT. Great. Software, hardware, 
You're SH, aren't you? Yeah, SH, SH. So I pointed them, they go, and it takes them ages to work out that they're shutting out. And once it dawns on them, the ice is broken and you're off. And you just want to be relaxed and be treated with respect. Yeah. And you can have a laugh. So excluding being uh, in you know far-flung locations with gorgeous models, etc., um, what would you say? <laughs> well, would you say that that's been the high, highest point of your career so far? Uh, what would you say has been the highest point of your career so far, Mike? Um, I don't think... I'm, I've been very, very, very lucky. I don't think there's one high point. I've been involved in several projects, which I look back on, and I think, wow, did I really do that? Um, being involved in Pebble Mill, I used to watch that at school when I was off sick. So to be there in the building, working with those people who I'd watched since I was a school kid was huge. So that was a high point for me. And I got to work with comedians like Rowan Atkinson, Michael Barrymore, Frankie Howard. Um, we, we did a sketch together. Uh, Kenneth Williams. I met so many uh, people that I... Idolize is the wrong word, but just that they were heroes of mine. Anyway, mm. so that was brilliant. So that was a huge project for me. Uh, doing Catchword, which was a quiz that ran on BBC Two for eight years. I'd never done a quiz show, a proper quiz show, a cerebral quiz show. I'd done a few game shows, and I didn't know if I could do it. And the BBC entrusted me with it, and that was great. We used to get huge audiences. It went out in the afternoon, but often it was the most watched programme on BBC Two of the whole day, including evening. Um, and launching Channel 4. Who, how many people get the chance to launch a new television station? Yes. So I don't think I've got one thing where I think, well, that was the peak. I, I think I've been very lucky. There's a kind of mini mountain range where there's a few peaks. Okay, so the flip of that. Yeah. The, the lowest point. Oh, gosh, the lowest point. There are so many low points. <laughs> One of them might be on Pebble Mill when uh, I was interviewing, who the heck was it? I can't remember who I was interviewing. Somebody important, it was a very serious interview. And they were doing a thing about Sharpay dogs and they were in the studio and you could hear, oh God, please don't let anything. One of them got away and sat on my shoe while I was doing the interview. So of course the director just went in a bit closer, which is fine, you couldn't see the dog. But then the dog decided that my shoe would serve as a toilet. And I had to carry on with the interview while the dog pooed all over my shoes. That was lovely. Um, trying to interview, again, a serious subject. Um, God rest him, Robin Williams, the American comedian. I interviewed him in the show, and he was great. But he decided he wanted to hang around, so I was doing an interview. He sneaked on all fours under the camera and tied my shoelaces together while I was doing the interview. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, things like that stick in your mind as I mean, low points in a sense, but you've got to laugh. Anything that... Oh, there was another one on Pebble Mill where they decided at Halloween I should get out of a coffin dressed as Dracula. So they put a coffin in my dressing room but didn't tell me anything about it. So I walked into the dressing room in the morning and there's a coffin there. I thought, what the heck is happening here? <laughs> and then I had to climb in it on the studio floor for rehearsals. You don't want to climb in a coffin, guys. It's not an experience. So there have been lots of things. And actually, the opening night of Channel 4 was a bit of a high and a low because we had 
the world's press there, they were popping champagne while we were working. There's a team of three or four of us downstairs doing the actual broadcasting. And um, we couldn't get any of the champagne, obviously, we were working. And then the next day when we saw the reviews, it was all Channel 4 letter word, Channel Swore. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it now, but back in the time, because there was a few swear words in some of the dramas and Brookside had started, which was a bit mm-hmm. edgy, they thought that we were just you know, going to uh, ruin the young people of the country. So that was a downer after months of preparation. So let's, let's, let's go a bit broader. Mm-hmm. Throughout your throughout your life and through your, your working life and your personal life, have you had any people who are inspirations to you along the way that you know you you've really looked up to, have been there for you to help point you in the right direction, or even people you know who, who work within broadcasting that you look up to and admire as somebody that you know, you you quite like to emulate their career? Anybody? anybody who, there's nobody whose career I would like to emulate. There's loads of people who I think, wow, you are just so good, so good at what you do. Um, and watching at home, even I, as somebody involved in the business, hadn't realized. I'll, tell you, I'll give you a, a case. Noel Edmonds. Now, Noel Edmonds now, people think he's, you know, past it and all the rest. But I have never worked, and I can say this categorically, I've never worked with a presenter who took my breath away like Noel Edmonds did in the studio. Now, I've worked with Terry Wogan, and he was absolutely brilliant, magnificent, the best. But Noel Edmonds is something else. He wasn't better or worse than Terry Wogan. He was different. I was a few times on, for instance, the Saturday show, Noel's House Party, in the gunge tank thing. And I would sit in on rehearsals and watch him and he held that whole, whole hour-long show together with no water cue, no boards up saying, next we go to the camera in so-and-so's house for the reveal of the Nothing. He just knew it. And whenever anything went wrong, public didn't see it. He covered it up. He was magnificent. And if I, at the end of my career, could look back and think I got even a fraction along the road that Noel Edmonds did in terms of professionalism and that kind of empathy with the public I, uh, I'd be delighted but on, on, on the well, on the business side one of the mentors guy who's been really good to me is now sitting in the House of Lords a guy called Sandy Leach comes from the firm of Lord Leach and he used to be the CEO at Zurich Financial Services and when I coached them and I coached Sandy for various things various conferences and whenever he used to pick me up from home to go to uh, the conference center. We sit in the back of his car and they had a chauffeur obviously as the CEO. And every day in the back of his car, he would have the Financial Times and the Sun newspaper. And eventually I said, Sandy, what's this about? He said, well, I read the Financial Times to see what my peers are saying about us. And I read the Sun to see what our customers are saying about us. He said, because if you only listen to your peers, you're no use, no use whatsoever. I thought, wow. And he taught me a lot about um, mm-hmm. so So he's one. I think the guiding light overall and the one guy who really, without any doubt, helped me more than it. Well, actually, not without, before I come to him, um, 
Andy Park, the guy who I mentioned earlier at Radio Clyde, he was great with me and really encouraging. That's how I got into radio and he eventually gave me the job. Alex Dixon, who was the head of news and then became the program controller at Radio Clyde, took Andy's place. He was magnificent and gave me lots and lots of help. But I think above everyone, probably my dad. My dad worked in telly. I was brought up with it. He was a lighting director. And by the time I wanted to get into telly, he was a kind of junior executive. And I applied for a job without telling him as an announcer at STV. And I only discovered years later, after I got the job and I started broadcasting, that he'd actually gone to the guy whose job it was to audition the announcers and asked him not to give me the job. And... Uh, the guy said, well, why? He said, because I don't want people to think it's nepotism. I don't want people to think he's only getting the job because of me. And my dad had to have all these reassurances and see tapes that I was the one that suited the job more than the others who were auditioning before he relented. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got the job and the career wouldn't have gone on. Sure. Well, uh, I'm conscious of the, the time. Zoom is marvellous for showing that we've got four minutes, 46 seconds to go. And we've been engrossed in a lot of your conversation. It's been fantastic. I really appreciate the fact that you've come on. I was going to, the podcast is originally set up to inspire and motivate people. I was going to a great Scottish term for procrastination. I'm sure you've heard that a million and one times. I was going to, from a perspective of, Anybody that's inspired or has been inspired with the podcast and is aspiring to become another Paul Coyer and want to get into the oh, media yeah. uh, oh. industry, <laughs> what, 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 what advice would you give to them uh, at the start of their career, Paul? If you want to get into the media industry, whether it's as a presenter, researcher, producer, whatever, 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 the one thing you have to do is treat the word no as when you hear the word no, hear it as not yet. And I always say this to people because people will say no, but then things move so quickly. 24 hours later, it might be a yes, but you're not there. They only remember the last face they've seen. And if yours isn't the last face, then they'll go for someone else. Never, ever, ever take no for an answer. Don't make a nuisance of yourself and have lots of irons in the fire. That's the other thing because as we've discussed on this, I do different things. Radio, TV, the corporate stuff, I write, blah, 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 and I write audiobooks. Because as a presenter, the chances of you making a really good living aren't great. There are a few who do. But keep your hands in the fire because one thing informs the other. If you're only a presenter, you are a boring so-and-so. I work with so many presenters who can't talk about anything other than themselves or the fact that they know when a floor manager runs out of fingers, that's the time that you've got to shut up. Well, you know, big deal, so what? They're not rounded people. There are lots of people who are because they, they know they have to have other interests. Have lots of interests, don't take no for an answer. And in the meantime, network like crazy. Find out where these people that can give you a job go whether it's a club or whether it's somebody you know who knows somebody else, they can give you an email address. Never be scared to send an email or make a call or whatever. So they say no. If you hear that as not yet, it's not a kick in the teeth, is it? It's just, a, all right, well, tomorrow's another day. Thank you so much to Paul Coya for joining us this week. For more information on the I Was Gone project, please check out www.iwasgoni.com. 
www.ghostsofthepodcast.co.uk. And in the meantime, please stay safe and stay home.